Welcome, you're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menifee-Gal. Just be aware, there's going to be spoilers here. Hey everyone, this is Terry. Back in July, the Wild Goose Festival invited Outlander Soul to participate in their Goose Cast. We had a great time chatting about narrative as sacred text and found a lot of Outlander fans, just like us. The Wild Goose is a four-day spirit, justice, music, and arts festival that happens every summer in the mountains of North Carolina, not too far away from where Fraser's Ridge might be. If you're of the Christian tradition, or even if you're not, you'll find something wonderful at the Goose. Thanks to Russ Jennings from Common Soul Productions, who recorded our podcast, and to the folks at Wild Goose for giving Outlander Soul a voice this summer. To learn more about the festival, go to wildgoosefestival.org. We hope you enjoy this. Today, obviously some of you are very aware that we are going to branch into something we've never done before, and that is, I'm going to say, genre fiction, particularly romance genre fiction, despite the fact that the author would rather have it thought of as historical fiction. And we actually finding theological uh, insights from working with that story, the story of Outlander, which is a seven, so far a seven-volume book series. It's a six or five or six, five-season TV show. Eight. Uh, eight, eight. Oh, she's eight writing books. that. Oh, is that right? Four oh, God. seasons that have been released, five. And yeah, they're shooting yeah. the fifth Coming. season now, yeah. Okay, well, welcome, please. Uh, where are you guys from? The, uh, first, Terry Menifee-Gow. Where are you from? Terry Menifee-Gow is from Richmond, Virginia. Richmond and Jamie Reeves, where are you from? I live in the UK and England, but I am originally from the States. Oh, the name of this podcast <laughs> is Outlander Soul. Soul. Yeah. Outlander <laughs> Soul. Okay, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Yay! So, um, welcome. We're, uh, we're Outlander Soul. Uh, I'm Dr. Jamie Reeves. And I am Reverend Terry Menifee-Gal. Yeah. Um, and so we um, focus specifically on the uh, on Outlander, the TV series, or no, book series, sorry. Book series written by Diana Gabaldon, um, but that has been adapted into a TV series, so that's how mo- a lot of people enter into it. But we look at it from... A theological point of view. Yeah. Um, and, and generally, we look at it from narrative theology as well as feminist theology. Yeah. So we're kind of looking through Outlander Soul, or Outlander Soul is looking through the Outlander story with that lens because we believe that it's um, a story that uh, that can still teach us something the more we go back to it. Yeah. So today, uh, for Wild Goose, because we weren't sure how many people were going to be here, if it was just going to be us or if it was going to be you guys, and so we're excited that y'all are here. But um, the th- what we wanted to do was to make it as accessible accessible as possible. So we wanted to c- more talk about our methodology, um, why Outlander, but also just why fiction in general, and what is it that fiction has to give us, and how can we approach those texts and do that well. Um, and so... Yeah, we're not, we will certainly mention Outlander since you guys all know Outlander, that's great. How many of you guys know Outlander? Yeah. That's everybody? Oh, all but Just one. about, but okay, one. Okay, okay good. Cool. We're talking to you, man. Yeah, we're talking yeah, we're to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we, 
We'll try to be careful about spoilers. Are you guys? Is everybody up to date? No? Well, she's just she's no. just a okay. television series. Okay, so okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we'll be careful about spoilers on that. Um, but yeah. Okay. So a couple things to sort of set us off as far as what we want to cover. First, um, well, kind of reading. Yeah. How's that? Okay. Better. Okay. So um, what we want to talk about is reading fiction as sacred text. Um, and believing that text has some sacred text has something to give us and fiction as sacred text also has a gift to give us um, so some of those questions is what makes a text sacred so we'll ask that question and talk about that a bit um, what's the relationship between fiction and truth um, that will explore that a bit too and then something around the difference between investment of belief um, as opposed to suspension of disbelief um, uh, in contemporary fiction and, and the difference that that makes in the lives of the people who read it um, so yeah so we'll go yeah. from there yeah um, anything you want to add Terry before we before we start I think the one person who doesn't know Outlander we will convert you by the end of this <laughs> We should hope, yeah. Uh, Jamie has said often <laughs> that she's been more evangelical about Outlander than, than she I has. ever was about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have 20 converts to my belt. Thank you very much. Um, so it is a quantifiable fact um, that I have more, yeah, I have more Outlander converts. That's great. Um, yeah, okay. So um, starting off, I think it's important for us to, to kind of acknowledge that that stories are important. Stories are what make us human. Uh, we tell stories constantly. Um, and so the role of narrative and the role of story in our moral and ethical and spiritual development is essential. Um, and so there's a, um, a novelist, um, Uruguayan author, Eduardo Galeano, um, who is attributed at least to have written that scientists say that human beings are made of atoms, but a little bird told me once that we're also made of stories. Um, and so as we're talking about what makes us human and what m gives us meaning in our life, that stories are a part of that. Um, and so if that's the case, it's not just biblical stories, but other stories that we tell ourselves and stories that we immerse ourselves in, whether it's print or whether it's TV or whether it's film or myth or, you know, whatever it happens to be, that those stories are really important. So, yeah. Um, and we know and you know done this too that you know fiction either you know all those different methods are read and watched over and over again to provide sort of escape and challenge and meaning and solace and so the question we had for people who arrived was what are the stories that you return to over and over and over again whether it's film whether it's tv whether it's book what are the stories that you revisit regularly? All of mine are romance, just about, all, all, except for Harry Potter. Yeah. I return to Harry Potter over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, a lot of Jane Austen. Mm. Um, and then there's this one, t there's this one movie I will, well, when I was, when I was younger, there was a couple of movies that I watched. It didn't matter if they came on, I'm going to watch them, but I'm going to watch foul play from the 1970s i for whatever reason just love that movie mm. not sure why i don't even know if i know that film it's chevy chase and goldie hawn oh yeah 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 
This oh is how gosh. old I am. Yeah. I w- <laughs> wow. I don't know what it is about that movie. Maybe it's the Madam Butterfly scene. I don't know, but I love that movie. And then um, you've got Mail, and it's cheesy. I know it's cheesy, Ooh. but I love that movie so much. Oh, the feminist in me. I know it I- breaks inside, doesn't it? It just breaks you a little bit, doesn't it? But I do love my grind. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. French Kiss is like that for me. Yeah. So can we ask, actually, yeah, if you have any any ones that you want to share with us, can you come to the mic? We know that's really awkward, and we wish you were sitting at this table with us. But, yeah, what other stories do you revisit on a regular basis? Or that you might have at one time and don't anymore? Yeah. Hi, what's your name? Hey, my name is Alan from Charlotte. Nice. Awesome. Thanks, uh, Alan. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me be here. <laughs> uh, there's a uh, a cult classic from the 2000s that called Firefly. That's a oh, one-season TV show that oh. I find that I'm not the only one that is obsessed with yep. and just keep watching that one season over and over. Yeah. And it doesn't even round off the plot. It just it's just one season. It got canceled. Yeah. And but still you saw the movie, right? Saw the movie. Okay. Great movie. Yeah. yeah. Serenity. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. Cool. Weed night. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? My name is Liz. Liz. I'm also from Charlotte. Yay! I am a science fiction fantasy reader. Mm-hmm. And so I usually just find an, an author that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon Sandin. Brandon, I can't even think of his name right now. But he finished the Wheel of Time series. Mm-hmm. Oh, when, I've um, about those, when the guy, uh, the original author, passed away. Yeah. And then um, Brandon Sanderson mm-hmm. picked up on the last book. And then I was like, it was really interesting through wha- reading through Wheel of Time because you lost a lot of momentum towards the end. Mm-hmm. You know how sometimes they'll drag it on because they're like making money. So that he mm-hmm. is, I think it's like 12 or maybe 13 books. Mm-hmm. But right around the time that he took over, it mm-hmm. just took on a whole new life that was just like, who is this author? So mm-hmm. I do that with authors. Mm-hmm. I'll like track them down. Mm-hmm. And then th- something also that I always tell people that I don't know if it's appropriate. Yeah, you cuss on here. Okay. I call myself, I call myself like a final uh, book series whore because yes. I yep. will hold on to characters. Right. Like I don't want to let them go. So if there's 15 books, I'm in yeah. because I love them so much. Yeah. So um, when like this, it's called Stormlight Archives. Okay. Every time a new book comes out, I'll just start at the beginning because then I can like catch up yeah. on the story and like reread all of them again. Yeah. So that's when I return to, I connected with Jane Austen. Yeah. Every two years, I'll go through that cycle and just go back and read all of her books. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Mm-hmm. And then um, same with Lord of the Rings. Like, you know, it's been oh, about yeah. five years. Yeah. I should reconnect yeah. and yeah. read all of those. And then I just yeah. kind of dip into like the Silmarillion mm-hmm. and like get really nerdy when it comes to it. So yeah. I used I'm to glad do you guys that. exist. Yeah. I used <laughs> to do that in, s- in seminary, especially every autumn reread Lord of the Rings because they start their 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 adventure, travel their yeah, adventure in yeah. the autumn and so it just felt right there was just something about the time of year for that yeah i haven't done that in a while but i need to to again yeah my name's tammy um it was gray's anatomy and life itself oh, life itself wow. and gray's anatomy yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. my two favorite okay watched life itself like five times yeah yeah Wow. Well, of course, cool. we feel the same way about Outlander because yeah. obviously we have a podcast on it. So yeah. we keep going back and rereading the books and yeah. rewatching the series. Yeah. And yeah. I've read the book series now, what, three times? Something four, like I that. Count. But when the new one comes out, 
hopefully i'm raising next my hands year. in prayer <laughs> um yeah next year sometime maybe um yeah i'll start from the beginning and then and then read that one the yeah. next one yeah. so i i hear you in that yeah okay so the difference that i well i think that's what's really important when we when we're talking about sacred text we rarely talk about fiction in the questions that we also take to to the Bible or to the Quran or to other sacred texts is kind of what does this mean for us? We think that this this book doesn't necessarily have a lesson for us, but I, I think we're selling it short when we do. So questions around like how does this text shape how we see the world? How does it interpret how we see the world? Because um, there's, I mean, I don't know anybody else uh, familiar with Octavia Butler? Yeah, so um, she that has become sacred text for me, especially um, um, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. Those two have have gotten me through these last two years, um, and so and yeah, recent convert, but still. Um, so the question I think or intrigued by the question of why we and especially if you are a person of faith why we rarely talk about or embrace fiction as a motivating force for our spiritual and our moral and our ethical development um except for those books that it's the gospel according to and you know people will kind of start picking things apart but it's it feels just really kind of surfacey when you when you do that instead of just engaging with the text as it is with lectio divina or you know all the kind of liturgical readings that we might do so a recent project that's taken that on, and you guys might know about it, um, is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Has anybody listened to that podcast? Yeah? Okay. Um, so it arose out of the Harvard Divinity School's Humanist Hub, um, and they had reading groups um, that met and did, like, Bible study using those same methods, but around Harry Potter text. And didn't they do daily spiritual practices based on, yeah, so you get daily spiritual practices, yeah. much like you would have in a religious society or a religious group. Yeah. 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 And so that began in 2015. Now they've got like, I don't even know how many listeners, but they're on a world tour and yeah, there's plenty of people there. So it's obviously scratching an itch, right? Um, and so one of the things that that podcast came out and then I was also so I was doing some work um, with scriptural reasoning folks so people of different religious faiths who come together and you set a theme like the Harry Potter and the sacred text does of friendship or refugees or something like that and everybody brings a text that's important to them from their tradition that speaks to that issue and so you know Christians would bring a particular text and Jews would bring it to, you know and, and it would just be that but then humanists or other you know just other people pagan whatever it might be we're bringing harry potter we're bringing khalil gibran they were bringing uh carl sagan they were you know all kinds of other texts and those are being brought into this discussion around scriptural reasoning around a particular topic that i thought was really exciting of going okay so here are these stories that people are reading and listening to and paying attention to and finding authoritative for them they're actually using them too in ritual. I know. So since I'm since I'm um, a minister, I do a lot of weddings, and many of the weddings I do are spiritual, but not religious weddings. Yeah. Or I do um, weddings that combine different traditions together. And I'm getting I'm getting Albert Einstein as some of the scriptural readings, mm -hmm. um, in place of the scriptural readings. Or I'm getting I, I I can't tell you how many have used the Velveteen Rabbit. The um, you know, love makes Captain you real. Pirelli's mandolin yeah. has been in a lot yeah. of a lot of weddings I've yeah. done. And and Harry yeah. Potter. I mean it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Diane Winston, uh, who's a scholar on media and religion based in California, um, focuses specifically on Game of Thrones, um, the TV TV series and book series. And she argues that stories like these give their audiences the opportunity to contemplate and debate fundamental concerns about the meaning of human life. Um, Issues that are central to all world religions and all people in general, right? And so she also says, and here's a quote, um, that storytelling is both instructive and inspiring, encouraging viewers to evaluate their own lives and their own choices. And the show, being Game of Thrones, like many sacred texts, highlights men and women whose human frailties do not define them. Take the stories in the Hebrew Bible, which many Jews, Christians, and Muslims uh, believe is the word of God. Biblical figures drink, they deceive, they engage in violence and incest and familial conflict, but that stories like these have parallels in religions worldwide and enable believers to con- confront their own shortcomings and strive for lives of, of consequence. So she says that these kinds of stories remind us that even the greatest religious figures are human beings who succumb to temptation. And so Game of Thrones characters hold our imaginations in a similar way because their quests for meaning, purpose, and identity echo our own and echo the stories we know from our sacred texts. Um, albeit writ larger and with dragons, right? (laughs) And so she says, just like sacred texts that for centuries have helped believers reflect on right and wrong and that gray zone in between, Game of Thrones spurs audiences to see beyond their daily woes and to consider the meaning and purpose of their own lives. Um, So yeah, so she says that she believes that, um, Diane Winston again, that people seek inspiration and instruction from popular culture when institutional religion no longer speaks their language, right? And Ooh, we got and, some complaints. Yeah. <laughs> and so these stories with complex plots and complicated characters um, enable us to participate in them and discuss those questions that re- institutional religion is not giving us the space to ask. So the conversation is happening, but the church isn't always there. Exactly. And and that's a that's a huge concern. If the church yeah. isn't always there and they're not speaking our language and the language of the parishioners. So that was one of the reasons why. You know, one of the largest, um, well, the largest share of book sales by far and has been for the past 30 years is romance fiction. Mm hmm. It is by far the largest. If you're going to be an author, write a romance and you want to sell your book. Books. Right, romance. Be a romance novelist. Because that's what's going to get you some money. Because so few actually make the New York Times bestsellers list. They don't. It just in general authors don't make that list and so, yeah you know. and and so if you've got that many books being sold odds are the people sitting in your pews in particular the female gender sitting in your pews are going to be reading those books and nobody is speaking to that from the pulpit mm. so this is a cultural issue except to condemn it when they, <laughs> yeah, when they do that speak too. to it about the yeah. from the pulpit they are condemning reading that kind of books yeah and they've actually been condemning it since they were first written back in the what was it the 18th century yeah pamela because anyway yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's patriarchy for you that's right anyway so um speaking of patriarchy speaking of patriarchy (laughs) 
and culture and cultural shifts. Um, one of the things that uh, Levi Strauss did back in the 20th century was talk a lot about how stories and mythology get carried through the cultures mm-hmm. and how stories actually spread culture mm-hmm. and how culture is is supported by the story because we are the stories we tell ourselves. We become those stories and they become a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So there's this, um, I don't know if you guys listen to the Nerdette podcast. Caitlin. fantastic. Yes. in Chicago. Yep. If you don't listen to them, they're so great. Trisha Bobita and, oh no. Caitlin Moran? No, no, no. no. She, was a, was she was a, a guest. guest. G- uh, Greta, Greta, Greta Johnson. Yes. Woo. Yes. Yay, Jimmy. Yay, Jimmy. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, so Caitlin Moran made this observation as well about it. Uh, culture marches forever. Culture's always there. We need politics. We need legislation. They're really useful, but culture works so much faster, mm-hmm. and it's so much more inclusive, and it it has so much glee and joy. And in talk and in talking about campaigning and talking about social change, culture is the best way because if someone is just talking about politics, they'll knock on your door and say, "We are going to talk about something worthy." <laughs> and depending on how guilty you feel that day, you get you go, "Okay, I will listen to this worthy thing." Uh, and it will be a duty whereas if you find a book or a TV show that you love that's dealing with these issues, you're going to grab somebody by the lapels and you're going to say, "You've got to watch this. Oh my god, we've got to talk about this." Mm-hmm. And it's all being spread through love and energy and velocity. George Orwell and Charles Dickens started off as polemic journalists. And they moved to fiction really fast because they learned that's how you get your message across. It's spread through velocity and joy and energy. So whoever owns the story, whoever's telling the story, Whoever's story lasts is what that culture ultimately becomes. Mm -hmm. And so that's why engaging our stories aside from um, what we have canonized as sacred text is really important, particularly Mm -hmm. the pieces that we keep coming back to. Mm -hmm. Um, The culture that we have around, good gosh, the culture that we have around the story of Cinderella Mm -hmm. and the waiting and the waiting for your prince to come. Mm -hmm. You know, I know stories of women who have... Want to break out in the song? <laughs> Someday, my prince. Yes, um, the 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 story of waiting for your prince to come, or the or you know, and I'm a huge Pride and Prejudice fan, but but the going after the not so nice Darcys that are out there isn't always You're the gonna best change thing. Him. You're yeah, gonna we're going to change out he's him. Really he's, okay, you know, something's going to happen. It's, it's not always a healthy thing. Mm. But when you have a community around something like that, you can challenge it. And you can challenge your sacred text just like we challenge our canonized sacred text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so in that way, culture, for these particular stories, we want to take fans really seriously. We tend to kind of poo-poo or make fun of or talk about nerds as being, you know, like, eh, you know, we don't want to be that. But there's something really holy work, I think, about having people who devote so much time and energy to a particular story as a fan um, and, and their joy and velocity and energy.
energy in talking about that story to other people. Um, and so part of the work that we do around the Outlander Soul stuff is saying, right, we know there is a fan base that loves this story. So we want to take this story seriously and we want to take the role that it plays in their lives seriously. So we want to ask them, what are you learning from this text? What are the things that you go back to time and time and time again and you read it differently every time? Sound familiar? Right? So, um, so yeah, so what makes a text sacred? There's a couple things, and we'll start actually with the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text methodology because it's a great place to start. Um, so what they say in the context of this reading fiction as sacred text, the first thing is we trust the text first and foremost. We must believe that the text is capable of more than what we've gotten from it before. And so we must believe that it's not just entertainment, but if we take it seriously, it can give us reward. Okay? So that's the first one. It has a gift to give us. And if we pay attention, it'll be there. The second is around rigor and ritual. And so by reading the text slowly and repeatedly and with a close reading, there's also language around reading it both with intention and attention right? Um, that it becomes a key part of what makes the book sacred, this story sacred. So the book isn't sacred in and of itself, but it's through that rigorous engagement that it becomes sacred, right? Um, so that's the second part of the methodology. And then the third is that it's reading it in community, that you're not reading it alone. Um, so scholars of religion explain that what makes a text sacred isn't the text itself, it's not the words on the page, but it's about the community of reader who readers who proclaim it as such. So we gather together and we say, this text means something. We are gonna read it with rigor and with ritual because we believe it has a gift to give us. And it's through that community and that there are other people who are constantly spurring you on that then makes it true, right? Okay. So it's not just water cooler conversations. No. No, it's, it's not just, you know, because that's a lot of these things are spurring those types of conversations wherein the church is not involved. And so this is a little bit more. This is more intentional. Yeah. 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 And elsewhere, I mean, the Harry Potter crew, Casper to and Vanessa Zoltan will talk about um, that the methodology isn't that the text itself isn't. It isn't sacred, but it's made through the rigorous engagement in that community of readers who proclaim it as so. So. I think what's important, though, for us to talk about or, or differentiate is that the difference between reading a text as sacred and saying that the text is sacred, right? Um, and so when we kind of, we talk about the Bible, if you're familiar, uh, you know, familiar with kind of hermeneutical practices and stuff, but Christianity would talk about the Bible in that kind of light too, right? So do we find the book we call the Bible authoritative and sacred because it's infallible and inerrant? Or do we find fundamentalists would say that it is, but others would say no, it's not, it, there are mistakes or, the, you know, there are things in there that um, we don't may decide to reject. But do we find it authoritative and sacred because it's the literal word of God dictated by God through an amanuensis, again, some people would say yes, because they've approached the text in that particular way, but others would say no. So the argument, I think, of divine inspiration, I think, is similarly subjective to how we talk about or approach fiction, 
too. Um, well, and, and, and J.K. Rowling will tell you that yeah. she was inspired. Yeah. She was sitting in a coffee shop and it all came to her all at once. Yeah. Um, other writers I know feel that way too. Suddenly the story just kind of opens up to them and, yeah. and they, they inspired write everything down. Yeah. And whether they intended to or not doesn't no. really matter no um wh- one of the for biblical her- hermeneutics there's a, an approach called reader response criticism and so you read the bible and then what makes it sacred what makes it authoritative is how the reader responds to that and that same method is used when we talk about fiction as as sacred text too there's this upside or, or there's a downside to that as well i think though so one critic of this kind of methodology um, is uh, says that just because, according to this mes- methodology, if I wanted to engage Fifty Shades of Grey or Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs um, with enough rigor and in community with others, then that those texts, too, become sacred, right? So there's an issue around relativity, right? That if everything becomes sacred, you know, all that kind of stuff. And nothing is, right? Yeah, right. 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 So, but I do think that there's a couple other things we need to add to that methodology um, in order to give it a little bit more weight. Um, And the first, I think, is the text needs to be generative. So it needs to give life. It needs to continue to be giving, right? Um, It can't be shut down. It's not the end of the story, as it were. Does that make sense? Um, And then the other thing is that it needs to carry a moral or ethical weight. Um, It may be a negative one. Game of Thrones could certainly be in that way. Um, But that there has to be something that that people look to and say, this has weight to it. There's a gravitas to it. So, yeah. Yep. So... We have to talk a little bit about the difference between truth and the difference between fiction Mm. and what is true and what is fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, Flannery O'Connor said that uh, writing fiction is about everything human and we are made out of dust. And if you scorn getting yourself dusty, then you shouldn't write fiction. It isn't grand enough for you. But the thing about writing fiction is that you're writing the truth. Mm. You're just writing it about people that don't actually exist. You're always observing. You're always watching for humanity because if it's a particularly good piece of fiction, it's going to ring true to you. It's going to create an emotion for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what any good art piece will do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not the technicality. You can look at something that's technically perfect, something that's written technically, but if it doesn't create an emotion if it doesn't create a response Mm -hmm. it's not really at that level Mm -hmm. of creating an art for you of of having you connect with humanity and you're using create and that's where that generative yeah it needs to generate it needs to create it needs to pull something and continually do that it's not just a one-off i mean you saw cloudy with a chance of meatballs once you're probably not going to go back and see it again (laughs) it's not going to i know (laughs) it's not going to inform you daily in your daily life and but firefly might yeah you might be able to go back and continually watch that show and learn more from mal and learn more from his relationship with anara and learn more from you know Mm -hmm. the the sacrifice of wash i mean you're going to learn about those things i know i know it kills me every time (laughs) every time when i think of wash um so 
so the idea is that you're describing in fiction as you're writing it you're describing what you see but you're not tidying it up mm-hmm. this isn't Horatio Alger Hmm. And um, if you guys do, you, do you guys know who Horatio Alger, Horatio Alger novel novels from the 19th century? They were very popular serial novels that were in periodicals back in the 19th century, and they were always about they were moral, they were moralistic novels, and they were always about the young man who doesn't have two pennies to scrape together, but somehow through hard work and obedience, he does make it in his life. And these were stories that were often taught in Sunday schools. They were often taught in regular schools, particularly in poverty-ridden areas. Um, and as a as a means, a gospel, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, gospel. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's and that's ultimately what it becomes. But this is an actual solid way of looking at fiction as means of of teaching someone something and creating that person out of that story. Mm. Mm. So faith and fiction, um, we look at the Bible in this way too. Now, some people do read the Bible as if it's a historical record. Literal fact. A literal fact. Mm-hmm. And that Jonah was actually swallowed by a big fish. And then these, these there are many people. I grew up in that particular tradition. Um, but many, many of us don't read it that way any longer. Many of us read the allegory that's in the Bible. Many of us read the, um, the fiction that's in the Bible. We understand that a lot of it is... Um, is not necessarily true and in the sense of it being a historical fact but many of it much of it is metaphorical it's dreamlike it's outrageous <laughs> much of it's unbelievable but it still delivers in our canon that which is true it delivers us a, a solid bit of truth and so we're looking at fiction in the same way we're looking at fiction as a means of 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 finding the truth that helps us now in our culture and our everyday lives there goes, okay. my, there goes my glasses. Um, <laughs> and I want to say that, you know, once they hit that kind of truth, you end up with folks who are actually living it out. Um, for some people who who really find the truth in Harry Potter or find the truth in um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or find the truth in some of these things, there's an entire group of folks out there who are LARPing. How many of you guys know what LARPing is? Yeah, live action role play. They're living out their lives this way. They they get dressed up in these characters. They 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 go to places and pretend they're these characters. They are the characters that they and these characters actually feel real to them and we've had this conversation one of the one of the first podcasts we did with outlander soul was talk about how we feel like we are a part of the family in outlander that jamie and claire's group on fraser's ridge we feel as if they're relatives of ours we're in the mountains of north carolina as we're in the mountains of north carolina where jamie and claire lived and where fraser's ridge would be it feels as if they are they're part of the furniture of our lives, mm-hmm. right? The wallpaper. The wallpaper, yeah, all, of the, it, yeah. all of it. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, in Phantom, I think it's really important, too, is where we see this kind of dedication quite uh, most visibly. So fans will talk about stories that are sacred to them and the way that uh, that the a character isn't just a character. They are a member of our life, right? They are a member of our family. Um, And so they're no longer an object or a thing in itself, but an event or something that has happened to us when, when, 
Jamie or Claire go through a particular situation in that story, we feel it. Um, and so I think there, there's that reader participation sort of idea. Um, and be, people begin to talk about fictional characters as if they're real in this alternate uh, dimension that we might have. So the difference, I think, is around... We talk a lot about, uh, or the, we would use the phrase a lot around um, suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Um, and so texts and stories with fandom around them are generative texts because they generate debate and thought and action. And so for a story to change us, we have to believe that it's true and that there's something important enough about it, authoritative enough about it for, us to, for it to change us. And so instead of suspension of disbelief, um, another podcaster, Alistair Stevens, uh, talks about that suspension of disbelief language um, implies that our natural state is incredulity, that we don't believe. Um, but as the case at the as the case actually is, we, we are believers. That is the, the meaning of being human is to believe in something, right? And so he argues that it's more about the investment of belief instead. So that stories are, he, this is a quote from him, that stories are simply constructed artificial apparatus for us to house our belief temporarily. And in doing so, we gain emotional catharsis, we gain a greater understanding and a greater perspective, some philosophical insight. And so we choose to imbue these wonderful stories with our belief. And so he says, as we long as the story, er, the long for the stories to have a space for that belief that can persist. And so we are gathered in fandom because we know that this particular story and these people, we feel them. He says, and we trust and believe that they exist in a way that is more true than true or real, more real than real. And it's not a trivial thing and it's not something about which we should be ashamed, but that there's a reason why people read these stories over and over and over again. And so I guess the question is, since humanists are really the ones who started the whole Harry Potter and the sacred text, is reading... In, if, if you are humanist in absence of a canonized sacred text, I mean, there are sacred texts in, in humanism, um, is, is reading, are reading these narratives, are reading these fictions only for the folks who are just, who are without a religion? Hmm. Is, is our, or can we participate in this way? Mm. And of course, I think the answer, the only reason we're sitting here, our answer is yes, obviously. Uh, and, and I guess the question is, how do you all feel about that? Where, where do you want to go with this? Is there, are there texts that you would like to see brought forward in your sacred spaces at, at back home that would provide an extra layer of understanding the experiences in your life that maybe either the Bible doesn't offer um, or maybe that you're not getting in your uh, community experience. Mm. And we have a lovely microphone up here. <laughs> we would and love to hear your questions um, about this particular, about our particular presentation or about narrative. Hello, my name's Jim. And, hey, Jim. Uh, Speaking from a, a Quaker tradition, mm -hmm. um, revelation didn't end with revelation. Right. So if you consider revelation being ongoing and continuous mm -hmm. and arising through everyone who allows it to arise through, mm -hmm. wisdom comes 
or can come through everyone's voice. Mm. It's a matter of how you collect it and mm -hmm. collectively work with it. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of things that work in that way. Yeah. Uh, in our, we have a group in our meeting that we bring up books and we read them together out loud with each other. Mm. And uh, you know, some of them we've done a few times. And they're not, you know, we don't think of them as scriptural because we're just looking for to mine the wisdom out of them. Mm. It's relevant to us now mm. and understanding the context that they were written in, mm. which is similar to how we work with the Bible. That's yeah. exegetical right there. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're exegeting yeah. those stories. Yeah. Uh, but it's doing it together that matters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a fiction lover, mm -hmm. Um, I always bring those kinds of things in. That's great. That's great. Hey, before you sit, can I? I don't want to pick on you, but we. <laughs> but she's gonna. <laughs> I'm. I'm gonna ask you a question. Um. So, we don't in the Outlander world. There are male readers, but Outlander fandom is primarily female, and I am really curious. What took you to Outlander? What what did you enjoy? What have you gotten out of it as a, as a male reader? Don't feminine myself. Okay. Okay. That's been a lifelong examination, enjoyment, uh, right. something I've worked with. I mean, I sat in uh, uh, Yeshua and the Goddess mm -hmm. group yesterday. Mm -hmm. Right. And I felt at home. Yeah. So I'm at home with, you know, uh, authors that are not male, mm. stories with female characters who are not there for the men only. Yeah. yeah. They're for themselves. Yeah. That's just me. Yeah. I'm so glad to know you, Jim. Me too. Me too. <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Okay, Thank you. Anybody else? Questions? Concerns? Additions? Deletions? Subtractions? Hi, my name's Leland. Hi, Leland. Hi, Leland. And, um, what I find really interesting is um, there seems to be a really a, a real approach to saying, "Here's how we read fiction." Uh, can we take, you know, maybe how we read the Bible and then apply it to fiction? Uh -huh. And yeah. um, I'm actually a PhD student, not to toot my own horn, uh, <laughs> but one of the things I I look at is. Um, like horror in in the Old Testament, like mm -hmm. horror, you know, scary, stab, stab. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, um, there's quite a bit of it. Oh, absolutely mm -hmm. right. And what I'm trying to do, and I I think not enough people do, is go, well, how do we read fiction, and then can we apply it to how we uh, fiction or genre, and how how can we then apply it to read mm -hmm. yes uh, the Bible because it's um the Bible is full of genres you know even sci-fi and yeah. horror and romance and yeah. uh it's all there and yet we don't seem to or not a lot of people seem to then go apply like you know like uh does this story you know is about a man meeting a woman but we don't call it a meet cute right you know but that's what a lot of gen happens in genesis you know it's like oh it's a meet cute story yeah, and yeah. that's kind of you know can we understand it and um oh, rachel at the well i guess that is a meet cute a, yeah, yeah it a is a bit of a meet cute yeah. in it yeah. yeah and so it's um yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, so so there is an entire group of folks. So the, the term narrative theology is thrown around a lot, and it means 
a lot of different things. Um, um, and one of the things it means is looking at the story, the book that you're reading or the or like the book of Jonah, the text, yeah. the text that you're reading as an actual narrative. And that's one of the ways that narrative theology is understood. Mm-hmm. Um, another way it's understood is applying the same rigor to a narrative, to a fictional narrative and reading it that way and reading it in a way to, to mine out the theology that we need, which is how we read Outlander mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Um, another way of looking at it, and, and, and this, is, this is something that we've been talking about a lot mm-hmm. this past, um, the last couple of days is what I've noticed in our schedule at Wild Goose and um, and in many of the conversations is everybody is talking about their own story. Everybody wants to talk about their own story and being able to live true to their own story and be a part of their own story and being able to be authentic in their own story. That seems to be the language, the vocabulary that's around here. A I don't. A story. There's language. a lot of story, but yeah. the story is very personal here. It's not the story that's in scripture. It's not necessarily the story that's unless it's applied to their personal story, which I think is valid because we are the stories we tell ourselves, right? We are. That's as mm-hmm. you know how we started but what I find interesting is I don't know I think I just lost my train of thought but (laughs) (laughs) and this is my authentic story Um, but but let me just say I, I think that there are works out there that like take the um that take the book of mark the gospel of mark Mm -hmm. and look at it and try to find who the protagonist is obviously Mm -hmm. the protagonist is jesus in the story Mm -hmm. they look for the ark in the story they look for the denouement they look for the points of um the building action Mm -hmm. they they look for all of those things and so you can find that type of critique that's out there and it's really cool i i loved reading i i wrote i read several of those um when I was in seminary, read several and still have them um, critiques on gospels in that way. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a, it's a wonderful way of looking at Mm -hmm. a piece of scripture, particularly if you look at something like Jonah, Mm -hmm. which is that, you know, everybody thinks, yay, the Ninevites. And I think, wow, what happened to Jonah? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a total tragedy in my book. So what's your particular research, Leland, for your PhD? Oh, sure. Uh, So my uh, dissertation will be on uh, rape revenge narratives in the Old Testament. Oh my gosh, wow, we know somebody who does this. Yes, so let me, let me, oh, uh, well, shout out, she's a listener. So her name's Emma Nagoose, and she's based at University of Sheffield in in England, and she's focusing specifically on rape revenge narratives in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, it's great. Too. Well, it's not great, but it's well, yeah. Well, but it's it's, it's important work. It's yeah. important work. Yeah. And yeah. Emma was actually um, a guest on our show, we, yeah. and we talked about Jamie as the man of sorrow. So, do you know the Outlander narrative? Yeah. I, I don't. Okay, so Jamie that. Jamie is um, the male protagonist in this, yeah. and he um, he is raped, mm. and so she compares Jamie with the man of sorrows in the, the Book Lament- of Lamentations. Lamentations three. She reads Lamentations three as a as a rape narrative. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's 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 incredible. It's really incredible work that she's doing. Somebody else I would shout out. You're talking about horror. Um, Erica Dunbar uh, is at Drew University, um, and she's doing PhD on the Book of Esther as both comedy and nar- and horror. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Yeah, there seems to be a, a rise in kind of genre interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Or is there a specific text you're working with? 
So um, I'm doing a presentation in November on uh, Dina, the Genesis 34. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking at um, like Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. There's a film. Oh, back oh in wow. Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, that's and, uh, serious. Like the Last House on the Left. There's oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the Shiloh Project, also based at Sheffield, is um, a project looking at rape religion or rape culture and religion. So they've got lots of resources as well, and they would do blogs and stuff like that. So you ought to get connected to them because there's a whole network of folks who are doing all this work. Oh yeah. And Jamie yeah. and Jamie is one of those yeah, folks, and she's not going to tell you, so I will. <laughs> Jamie is one of those folks, and she yeah. actually last year at the Goose presented a paper that she wrote for the Shiloh Project called "Me Too Jesus." about mm -hmm. Jesus as rape victim yeah oh, wow. yeah yeah it's it's quite a it's it was an amazing paper yeah. so so cool I'll, I'll, I'll awesome thank you any any other else? comments yeah any uh, anyone else want to say questions cool well we All can right. finish up yeah thanks very much really appreciate you guys being here hey everyone Terry again we're taking a few weeks off because well life happens. We'll be back with the continuation of Outlander Souls Season 3 at the end of October. See you then. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. If you love what we do, a review, especially on iTunes, but wherever you get your podcasts would be really appreciated because it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us button at our website, on outlandersoul.com. There's lots of ways to donate, either via Patreon or PayPal, and every little bit helps. Also, we love hearing your comments, questions, and ideas for the show. So we'd like for you to join in the conversation. So you can reach us through our website, through email, voice memos, or social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us straight by email, outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com. All lowercase, all one word. Or you can visit our website at outlandersoul.com and fill in the contact form. Thanks again, everyone. Bye.